Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the latest from Myanmar and a controversial political alliance in Spain. It's all coming up. Hey, John. How are you? Ethan, I'm well. It feels like uh, it's been at least 24 hours since I've seen you. Yeah, how special is that? That's pretty cool. It was it was lovely uh, meeting in person. Unfortunately, we're now yet again uh, separated by a few thousand kilometers, but still great to see you. I still enjoy Likewise. these. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, John, we, we had some, we were, we were chatting earlier about the, the big news we woke up to, the UK mm. cabinet reshuffle, much anticipated cabinet reshuffle. Uh, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, very controversial figure, was sacked, uh, as they say in the UK. Uh, <laughs> and, and to take her place was James Cleverly, the, the Foreign yeah. Secretary. And taking James Cleverly's spot was actually, let's just roll this clip. By car coming up number 10, uh, down your street, I should say. Not quite sure who this uh, might be. Uh, if somebody's sacked, then of course they don't uh, come up down your street. That's done. In private, that's the security detail just opening the door for... David, David Cameron! Cameron. <laughs> Wait. I was not expecting okay. that! OK. I don't know if you... <laughs> I don't know if you... I love that so much. It's classic. I... <laughs> Did I love that it, it, it honestly feels like uh, like a bit of like a sport. I mean, royal watching is a sport. Now it's kind of ministerial reshuffle watching has become totally. a sport. I mean, did you hear the, and listeners go back if you didn't, the very faint, what the hell that a producer must have said <laughs> in the back. I mean, the British have great senses of humor. Uh, but I think Sometimes. even that, that clip showed even they are shocked uh, by the incredible silliness that their politics can sometimes deliver. Absolutely. What, what, what did you make of this this move? Also, remind us who David Cameron is. Well, yeah, I mean, he's the he's the former prime minister of the UK, the the infamous one who uh, took them, or at least presided over the referendum that took them out of Europe. Um, you know, he's a pretty well uh, established and experienced figure. One thing about him being the new foreign secretary is he'll have he'll have lots of friends that he's already met around the world, so that'll be a plus. But yeah. um, yeah, I, I don't have many comments other than just like I was shocked, and I I, I almost woke up saying what the hell as well. To be honest, <laughs> one one thing interesting that that I found was uh, David Cameron now because he's been appointed foreign minister, foreign secretary rather, uh, gets a seat in the House of Lords. He's now a, a member of Parliament. Um, so not only is he an unelected official serving as foreign secretary. The prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is an unelected prime minister, not elected by the people. He was elected by conservative party members. So two of the most senior members of British government were not elected, which is sort of strange. Yeah, well, Ethan, I guess you can't let uh, a, a good old-fashioned democracy get in the way of weird traditions where <laughs> people get elected to sit in <laughs> bodies for life for you know various reasons. But yeah. Never. Never. How, how could you? Well, John, you, you mentioned... David Cameron will come back with a lot of friends, but he's missed a lot. It's been seven years since he served in government. Uh, so let's let's talk about some of the things on his agenda. Uh, mm. You know, one thing would be the ongoing conflict in Myanmar between you know forces backed by the real, ruling military junta and rebels. So, John, if you found yourself in number ten to deliver the daily briefing, 
What would you tell Mr. Cameron about what's happening there? Well, actually, Ethan, it's number one, Carlton Gardens, uh, where uh, the foreign secretary resides, I'm afraid oh, to tell you. Oh, pish posh, John, come on. <laughs> I think probably should save our listeners' ears from doing accents. Um, but, uh, well, uh, to be honest, the situation in Myanmar isn't a particularly funny one. Um, a lot's changed over the last couple of weeks uh, lately. Um We've actually been watching this for a few weeks. I know we discussed talking about it earlier um, on this podcast, but we kind of wanted to just wait and see how it developed. Um, and where it's at now is um, an alliance of rebel militias known as the Brotherhood Alliance. Well, they began an enormous offensive a couple of weeks back, uh, 27th of October it started, um, which they've, they've called this uh, offensive Operation 1027 to, mm. to mark the date of starting it. Um, you know, I think over the first, over the first two, three weeks of this offensive, it's really developed into something that the Myanmar ruling military junta needs to take seriously. They've overrun potentially hundreds of military outposts, but it's hard to know just how many, obviously, um, along some of the more tr major trade routes in the country. They killed, uh, the military commander in the region, uh, and they captured at least seven towns. Now, Ethan, seven towns might not sound like much, but together they're more than 8,000 square kilometers of territory. And that's larger than the state of Delaware. Or if you're not aware of what Delaware is, <laughs> about six times <laughs> larger than the size of Greater London, which might be a more oh, relevant God, touch point yeah. for our international listeners. Well, and for Mr. Cameron. And for Mr. Cameron, exactly, who I'm briefing. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I think even more important than the territorial advance uh, and capturing of territory is the fact that these rebels are closing in on the border with China. Um, that's where about 40% of uh, cross-border trade for Myanmar takes place, obviously critical to revenues for the country and for the military junta. Um, you know, I think it's pretty pretty obvious that if those border crossings are sort of overrun by the rebel militias and they're seized, it'd be a huge blow to, to the incomes for the country and also to the credibility of the military junta for being able to kind of exercise control over the country's borders, right? Um, and then on top of all of that, we heard reports uh, early yesterday um, that another rebel group, encouraged by the, the, the success of the Brotherhood Alliance, uh, Brotherhood Alliance, I should say, is in that northeast Shan state of Myanmar. They have a couple of borders up there. But this other group that's been encouraged on in the western part of Myanmar, up near its border with Bangladesh, um, they've launched a corresponding offensive. So, you know, the, the Hunter seems to have a pretty big problem on its hand, a multi-frontal assault uh, in different parts of what is a very remote country. Um, and I think it's probably the biggest challenge to their rules since they came back to power, obviously, in 2021. Well, Mr. Cameron uh, hasn't held political office since 2016. He certainly wasn't around when the Hunter took power. So catch him up to speed. Well, newly made. And, and do it with a do it with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a pep in my step. Uh, well, exactly. Lord Cameron, uh, the, the military <laughs> returned. You'll, you'll have been aware of the military hunter, obviously, in the past, but they returned to power in 2021 after they toppled the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, they were obviously the preeminent force in Burmese politics for, for decades. Um, in 1990, for example, they agreed to hold elections despite being in charge of the country. Uh, but then when the result didn't go the way they wanted, they refused to hand over power uh, when Aung San Suu Kyi, who was a very famous um, you know, pro-democracy uh, leader in, in what was then known, I think, more broadly as Burma, um, they refused to hand uh, power over to her. She was actually the founder, or the, sorry, the daughter of Myanmar's modern founder. So she's like a real 
you know, political royalty in the country. Um, and they, they actually put her under house arrest. And, that, and that's where a lot of folks might have known her name originally from was that she was, you know, famously imprisoned in the 90s in a kind of beacon of democracy in the region. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the junta continued to rule Myanmar up until 2015 when they agreed to hold yet more elections, perhaps under the same assumption that they would win. Guess who won? Aung San Suu Kyi. Aung San Suu Kyi. Yep. yep. She came back. She, she came back around. Pretty Remarkable longevity, really, when you think about it. But she did so overwhelmingly. She won 58% of the seats in parliament. Her party did anyway. Um, and the next biggest party back in 2015 won only 7%. Uh, mm. So massive win. Um, and then she won again in 2020, uh, and this time by even more. But the military, having been sort of out or on the fringes of power for five years or so, said that was enough. They called the election in 2020 fraudulent and came back to power in a coup, essentially a coup, and they imprisoned her again. How did the people of Myanmar respond? Well, I think it's fair to say in a way that the, the junta probably didn't expect. There were protests. There were really angry protests on the street, which you know is, is kind of not something that I think um, anyone expected at the time. Uh, almost as soon as that coup took place, opposition leaders um, started to coalesce around what's now known as this uh, the National Unity Government. Um, and that's really just this name for a vast collection of different groups that generally oppose the, the military rule. Um, you know, the groups tend to be divided along ethnic lines, some on political lines. Um, and in lots of circumstances, I think they share very little in common other than that opposition to the military. Um, and then obviously, you know, talking about predictable response, um, unpredictable responses, the, the hunter's response was very predictable. It was vicious. Um, it was a crackdown. It was, it, you know, it made news right around the world. Um, and since then they've used their technological superiority and, and air power, um, mm. and, and just military power really to pursue a fairly indiscriminate campaign, including bombing, um, rebels, uh, and it's you know real scorched earth stuff too. You know, burning villages, displacing people—horrific, really. Yeah, I, I think uh, tempering indiscriminate with the word "fairly" may not be necessary. I mean, we're, we're talking about right. bombing outdoor festivals, bombing villages just full of civilians—horrific tactics. And I hesitate to use this word, but but have they been? effective for the military yeah i know what you mean when you when you say you're hesitant um effective is a is a distasteful word to use when we're talking about this kind of stuff but i guess what you're asking is has it a, has it helped them achieve their goals no matter how horrific those goals are and i think the answer to that question is maybe at first um back in sort of 2021 2022 um but i think now with time it's actually helped galvanize the opposition against them. Um, I think opposition groups have been able to point to these horrific tactics and rally support for them. Uh, you know, those disparate, disparate groups that I just said shared so little in common, they're coordinating more. They're being able to put aside whatever differences mm -hmm. they had because of these tactics that the military has has used. Um, and earlier this year, and I found this fascinating when we were when we were preparing for the show, the the, the junta only claimed stable control of around 20% of Myanmar's townships. And it's a number that seems to be falling every day. I mean, that's nothing, 20%. Right. That's that's not quite being in control of the country, is it? No, it's really, I mean, it's really not. That's why I was shocked. And and worse still for the, the junta, its soldiers seem to have been deserting them en masse as well. Uh, it was once a 400 odd thousand strong force of, of soldiers and, you know, in the military, it's now apparently mm. less than about 150,000. Um, and, you know, with each of these battles and each of these defeats to these rebel groups, I'd expect more of 
the, the military's hunters soldiers to desert or defect. Um, you know, I'm no, I'm certainly no military expert, but I'd be kind of shocked if the hunter was in a position now, given the desertions of launching a counteroffensive against these groups um, to sort of reassert their control over Myanmar. The, the best they may be able to do from here is to kind of hold on to power, hold the capital, hold some of the major cities and just try to wait them out maybe. Well, how, I mean, how long do you think they can do that? Look, I, I don't think I can make a guess on that and I don't, I'm not sure it's particularly helpful. Um, I think it's important though not to forget that this area, Shan State, not only borders China, as we said before, but it borders uh, Laos and, and Thailand as well. So there's a bunch of countries in the region that will be paying really, really close attention to, to how this develops. Now, obviously, my favorite topic, the big one here is China and how they react. Um, I think China will overlook just about any kind of behavior in, in countries that, that it shares borders with as long as that behavior means they keep the country stable. You know, you think of North Korea and what it puts up with or what right. it allows to happen in North Korea because North Korea can keep that border stable. Um, and I think that's why Beijing has been one of the of, of Myanmar Junta's most sort of important backers for, for a couple of years now. But over the past few months, and especially since late October when, when this offensive began, we've seen some signs that they might be rethinking their support. Now, you know, I don't think there's any sense of what would come after the junta, if that's the way this goes. So Beijing's never going to agitate mm. for change. That's not their style. They're not kind of, you know, making making sounds that they, they want to change a Myanmar. But I wouldn't be surprised that if a credible political force emerges in, in, in Myanmar in the near future, that Beijing wouldn't start reaching out, having conversations with it behind the scenes in anticipation of a Myanmar that isn't run by the hunter. Um, now, of course, all of this can fizzle out, but I don't know. Sometimes something just tells me this this uh, this time is different, Ethan. Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us. We're joining our friends at The Gist, The Elvest, Nice News, and Dollar Flight Club to give away $2,000 to one lucky winner. You heard me, $2,000. All you have to do to sign up is click the link in the show notes, add your name and email address, and if you're lucky, you'll have a couple grand at your door in time for Black Friday. You definitely don't want to miss this. All right, welcome back. So, John, uh, Lord... Foreign Secretary Cameron, whatever the Brits call their politicians, uh, he was so impressed, so impressed with your briefing on Myanmar that he's called you back for another session, this time to keep him abreast on some political turmoil on the Iberian Peninsula. Ah, Europe. Yes, yes. David Cameron's favorite topic, oh, of course. Oh, now, now you're being cruel. <laughs> loves, loves talking about it. Um, but no, you'll have to be a bit more specific uh, about the Iberian Peninsula, Ethan, because it feels like... Uh, there's been multiple causes of turmoil on the Iberian Peninsula lately. I mean, we've had huge protests in Spain over the weekend. Mm. Portugal's prime minister resigned in what I think was a fairly big shock to, to everyone in the region um, mm. amidst a corruption scandal. And even tiny Andorra, which is the answer to so many trivia questions, it's in the midst of a major housing crisis. Ooh, yeah, well, John, lots to choose from. <laughs> I, I admittedly had Spain in mind when I brought this up. Not that my interest isn't piqued on the others, but what's the story with these protests? I think that's I think that's the right one to pick. That's the one that I think has the most sort of geopolitical uh, relevance. Um, so I 
think to understand these protests to start off, we actually have to go back a couple of months to Spain's most recent election, which was held in July. Um, and it ended in a draw. Um, no single party won enough seats to form a majority and no group of parties seemed to have enough support to form a coalition that could then go on and have enough seats to form a majority. Um, so Spain has been kind of stuck in this limbo ever since. Um, and it's incumbent prime minister, a chap by the name of Pedro Sanchez, who our erstwhile colleague Helen called a tall drink of water over the weekend. Apparently he's a very good looking <laughs> chap. Um, but he's, we didn't, we didn't look him up, yeah. <laughs> but he's been serving as the interim prime minister while, uh, other party leaders have been jockeying for support to, to form that coalition and, and take government. Right. I think it became pretty clear, but rather quickly after the election that the conservative Vox party wouldn't be able to get enough support to form a government. There were too many parties that opposed them. Um, so responsibility turned yet again to Sanchez and his socialist party to see if they could figure out, um, a way to get a coalition and lead the country. And how is he slash, you know, they, the Socialist Party, how have they, how have they done that? Well, Ethan, this is where I think it t uh, transforms from a fairly average, boring European political story about forming coalitions into an interesting one um, because Sanchez has had to turn to a somewhat surprising kingmaker in the Catalan separatist party called the Junts Party. Um, they won just seven of the Spanish parliament's 350 seats. So that's one of the reasons that's surprising. He's done that over the last couple of months, I mentioned, since the election, and he's done it in some interesting ways. One has been to petition the EU to include Catalan, the language Catalan, in the EU's list of official languages, um, alongside other regional languages in Spain like Basque and Galician. Uh, but EU officials, unfortunately for Sanchez and Catalans, are pretty much immediately rejected that plan. So back to square one for, for Pedro Sanchez. And last week, after what, uh, again, months of negotiations, he did something kind of incredible, I think. So in exchange for the, the, the Junts party support, Sanchez agreed to a blanket amnesty deal for the folks that took part in Catalonia's independence movement six years ago. And, and, and some people might remember there were widespread protests, uh, which actually led to the leader of that Junts party being kind of forced into self-exile, a, uh, a man by the name of Carles Puigdemont. Uh, and he's been living abroad since 2017. Now, under this new deal, he can come back to Spain uh, and, and be sure that he won't be slapped in irons and put in prison. I'm, I'm so glad you, you mentioned his name, John, because I've also been eager to say his name. Uh, you know, this, <laughs> Give it a go. <laughs> the, the context you just, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You bear with me. The context you just uh, laid out for us brings us to the protests, uh, which I, I would take as a sign that not everyone in Spain is as pleased with this deal as <clears throat> Puigdemont probably is. There you go. It is quite satisfying to say, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're right. And there've been massive protests too. These aren't just kind of, you know, run of the mill sort of protests. We're talking hundreds of thousands of folks in the streets of Madrid all throughout last week and over the weekend. Um, and these protests, I think were organized by the, by the Vox party that we mentioned before. Um, from the protesters' perspective, I suppose Sanchez, it looks to them like Sanchez is striking a deal to become the leader of Spain, the Spanish prime minister, with, with, a, with a group of people who explicitly do not want to be Spanish themselves, right, right. which is kind of an odd kind of optic, right? Um, and and I, think, I think it's fair to say that many in Spain, obviously not all, but many in Spain despise Puigdemont. Um, so I think we'll find later this week if, if his gambit, Sanchez's gambit, is going to be successful because parliament will debate and then vote for a new prime minister uh, on Thursday. 
but I suspect there will be some long-term consequences for even trying to, to form this coalition. Um, you know, in the months leading up to Spain's election, I think the big news was how worried many parties or many people and countries were across Europe that this Vox party could come to power. They're sort of the right-wing populists of Spain. Um, I'm not really sure how the EU feels about an empowered Catalonian separatist, move, separatist movement if Sanchez does return to power, but I know that uh, many Spaniards are not going to let this go anytime soon. Uh, smashing, John. Smashing work. Uh, we'll, we'll see you back uh, at number 10 sometime soon. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Or Lord Cameron. Or I'm confused. <laughs> Whoever I am. <laughs> And that's going to do it for me. By the way, I'm sure you've been missing us in your inbox over the past few days, but we'll be back with a brand new edition of the International Intrigue newsletter first thing Wednesday morning. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.